When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear from our defence editor Daniel Sheridan, who's interviewing Ukrainian soldiers in Donbass, analyse the latest diplomatic news as Emmanuel Macron visits China, and we dive into what Finland will bring to NATO. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday the 6th of April, one year and 41 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, defence editor, Daniel Sheridan, foreign correspondent, James Kilner, and former NATO commander, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started by asking Francis for the latest updates from Ukraine. Thanks, David. A possibly significant development this morning, though one that may also be being blown out of proportion. So Ukraine is reportedly willing to discuss the future of Crimea with Moscow if its forces reach the border of the peninsula. That's according to analysis of an interview with Andrei Sabaya, an advisor to Zelensky, who's told the Financial Times, and I will read the quote in full, if, if we will succeed in achieving our strategic goals on the battlefield and when we will be on the administrative border with Crimea, we are ready to open a diplomatic page to discuss this issue. It doesn't mean that we will exclude the way of liberation of Crimea by our army. Now, if this is indeed suggestive of Kiev's thinking that they might be willing to discuss the future of Crimea in a negotiation, as some are interpreting this morning, then these would be the strongest comments yet from Ukraine in terms of their willingness to enter into negotiations with Russia since talks with the Kremlin broke down last April. Personally, though, I have my doubts. As we've reported, Crimea remains absolutely integral to the Ukrainian definition of victory. It was, of course, stolen by, uh, from them by force in 2014 and served as an important launch pad for Russia for this invasion. 
not restoring it would give Russia a permanent foothold on the peninsula, which the Ukrainians argue could destabilize their country. Plus, the Ukrainians have been really consistent in saying that their future economic prosperity rests on Crimea, that any contested territory will lead to less likelihood of Western investment in the long term and less likelihood of, of all of people returning en masse, which, of course, remains an absolute priority for them. So if this does mark a shift, and I don't think it does necessarily, which which I'll come to, that this is designed, I think, for a Western audience. Many Western officials doubt the military viability of assaulting Crimea, as we've touched on in the past. But more importantly, fear uh, that attempting to do so might prompt uh, Putin to escalate the conflict, possibly with nuclear weapons, is, is a real impediment for Western support of Ukraine, as we've seen in recent months. And so this, by opening the vague possibility of a negotiated settlement that could see part of Crimea going to Russia, it might give certain countries more flexibility in the weapons that they support. There have been reports that Ukraine has been quite heavily hamstrung, as I say, by fear that donated weapons could be used for an offensive on Crimea. So that's one way of looking at this. The other way of examining it is that there has been actually no change and that this marks rather a, a sort of misinterpretation of the Ukrainian position. So that they're not saying that Crimea could be negotiated away, rather that its future as part of Ukraine would be agreed at a negotiating table rather than by force. And there is some evidence trickling through this morning that that may be the case. Uh, so uh, Mikhail Podoyak, head of the office of President Zelensky, he's tweeted in the last few minutes, the basis for real negotiations with Russia is the complete withdrawal of Russian armed groups beyond the internationally recognised borders of Ukraine in 1991, including Crimea. There is no question of any territorial concessions or bargaining of our sovereign rights. So he also told The Telegraph earlier this year that he believed that a significant defeat elsewhere on the battlefield could produce a potential crisis in Moscow that would lead to Ukraine regaining Crimea without fighting. That would tally with the remarks of Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, who, when he was asked about Crimea last month, said, and again, I'll read this quote in full, there's going to be territory in Ukraine that the Ukrainians are determined to fight for on the ground. There may be territory that they decide that they'll have to try to get back in other ways. So if I had to choose between these two, I think the latter is more likely that actually nothing has changed this morning and that this is rather a misunderstanding from certain analysts. But if so, it is arguably a convenient one for Ukraine in the short term. It may get more countries to loosen the purse strings and give them more money and weapons as they prepare to launch the counteroffensive. So that's the big story there. Just a couple of other quick ones on the battlefield front. So Crimea is, is also relevant here. Russia is reportedly building up its defensive in Crimea with a trench system extending several miles uh, around the border. Uh, certain mil Russian military Analysts have told the Washington Post that the Russian military is uh, apparently understanding that Crimea will be have to be defended in the near future. And if that's true and Ukraine is planning an attack on Crimea, then the whole talk about Crimea this morning may, of course, be a ruse designed to mislead in the coming counterattacks. So, again, this is also uh, very interesting 
Just lastly, of course, we've talked a lot about Bakhmut and Prigozhin earlier in the week was trying to claim that Bakhmut had definitively fallen to Russia and particularly to the Wagner group. But uh, we've heard again this morning, senior advisor of President Zelensky said the battle for Bakhmut continues. They are underway in the streets. The enemy are attempting to encircle the city, but they are failing. Our command fully control the situation within the defensive fortress. And uh, he goes on to just talk about what's what, what, what the importance of, of, of holding back moves and also uh, that, that it's still continuing to be defensive. So, of course, Western analysis have, played, have been playing down the strategic significance of Bakhmut, but Ukraine have framed its defence as now being really important in wearing down the Russian forces as well as being symbolic. And so it's no surprise, I think, that Ukraine are pushing the fact that they are still fighting in Bakhmut, because I think if it were to fall to the Russians, and it may be a when rather than an if, it will mark something of a blow symbolically, I think, given we've been speaking about about it for well over seven months now. But anyway, David, I've spoken for long enough. That's where we are this morning in the military space. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Danny Sheridan, it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for making the time. You've been reporting from Donbass in the last few days. Could you give us a sense of your experiences out there? Grateful for Francis just finishing talking about Bakhmut because uh, that is where my reporting has taken me. Um, Yesterday, I spent time with soldiers in Chathaviar, which is the last town before Bakhmut. It's a very dangerous place. Constantly, we could hear the sound of outgoing fire, which, to be quite honest, made me jump out of my skin constantly. There are very few civilians walking around. That It is pretty much dominated by soldiers. And um, the few civilians that, that do remain feel... Not without hope. They've expressed that they don't flee the town because if they were to, they don't have anywhere else to go. So it's a case of leaving and becoming homeless or staying put and hoping that they will see this victory that the soldiers and and, and the country as a whole speak of um, as something that, that will become an actuality. But the conversation I had with various soldiers was that, well, they actually found it really hilarious, the idea that the Russians might have taken Bakhmut. They said that's completely not true, that they, I mean, they are limited in what they can share with the press. But they said that they, let's put it this way, we're doing enough rotations to, to hold Bakhmut and we're content with what we're doing. So they they. Uh, were dismissive of Russia's claims that it was making gains in Bakhmut and said that's just not the case and I am writing something uh, based on my time in Chassis in the coming days so it would be great if if readers could could keep an eye out for that but yes I I would just say ultimately um, it's, it's a very kind of bleak state of affairs there but as is so often something I say when I'm reporting out here, it isn't without hope. And the soldiers and the few civilians, I should probably say a handful of civilians, I don't know how many people are still living there. I think someone said about 700 people. But the, I mean, I, I saw a smattering of people yesterday wandering around. And um, they do believe that they will reclaim what was once theirs. But another thing I, I would just add is that A lot of my reporting since I've been out here has been in um, Kyiv. And then in the summer, I I spent a lot of time in the south. But this is, for me, the first time I've actually been east. And it has been a real shock, to be quite honest, to see 
just the level of destruction that civilians are having to put up with. I mean, I'm very lucky that I live in London and can jet in and spend a few weeks reporting here. But I have found it personally really difficult. Um, I haven't showered in days. There isn't decent water. Last night, I literally didn't sleep because there was just so much outgoing fire from my from where my bedroom was that it, it was just impossible to sleep. Like I was terrified. And I think... If I'm saying that as a Westerner coming in, like, I can't even imagine what it is like for the people of um, Chasibyar and the Donbass region in general. And um, yeah, it just it was um, just from a personal point of view, it was quite it was quite it's just been um, I think it's really important for me to see that. And I just I feel so deeply for these people that are living it day in, day out. You know, I'm lucky that I can leave here hopefully soon-ish and go back to my lovely privileged life and yeah it just really is an eye-opener when you you come to these places so that's my my two pence for what it's worth thanks very much danny can i ask when you were talking to the soldiers as, as francis mentioned we know how just how bloody and and awful the fighting has been in the east and how both sides have suffered a huge amount of casualties um did you get a sense of their morale? I mean, you said they were joking with, with, with you. They were sort of dismissive of the of Russian claims. What, what did you make of their... Did you, did you sense any worry? What, what did you make of their morale, basically, is my question. Understood. Uh, genuinely excellent morale. They were joking, smoking, laughing, but serious. They said, uh, you can make one mistake here and you can risk your life. So whilst they are cool calm and collected they understand that this is a very extreme and actually that's the word they used extreme situation but morale is high and they're all mates with each other and there's this one soldier i was speaking to he was only 20 and he's been in the army since he was 18 and he's seen so much action and um, I said, do you feel proud to be fighting for your country at such a young age? And he, he dismissed the question, you know, I'm, I'm not proud. It's just what I'm doing. And there were some older soldiers there that he was, were his superiors. And they were kind of like touching him on the shoulder and saying, well, we're proud of you anyway. So there is definitely a sense of camaraderie among the men. And they were just nice pe- nice blokes to talk to. And one of them went inside and came out and gave me some chocolate. <laughs> I was like, don't give me your rations. But they're just... Um, I just really got the impression that that the mood is positive among them and they weren't talking to me with a sense of fear in in their eyes and these are men that are literally going to back me I mean when I these particular soldiers I was talking to we were only five kilometers really from the front line that during that conversation the noise was just um yeah really quite terrifying it was just constantly hearing gunfire and I was trying to calmly interview them and was a bit jumpy but they didn't even flinch (laughs) so it just goes back to my point about how calm and collected they are but I would certainly say morale it it remains really strong among them. Danny one final question from me because I know you've got to get back to reporting are you able to share a little bit about where you might be heading next Uh, what are the stories you'll be looking at before heading home? Do you know what I'm not going to because it's a war zone and I have stuff lined up that could quite easily be pulled at a moment's notice and I don't want to put out what I might be doing and then it all falls through. So if you don't mind, I'll dodge that question. <laughs> there should be some really interesting pieces coming out 
of here soon. Well, thank you very much, Danny Sheridan, for joining us. And do stay safe out there. It sounds like you've had quite an experience over the past few days. And all of us are thinking of you. And yeah, looking forward to reading your dispatch tomorrow. James Kilner, can I turn to you? Yesterday, Francis Dernley mentioned, and we, we could only speak about it very briefly because just of the time it broke and the time we went live, but explosions in Melitopol. You've been looking into that and wrote it up for the website and the paper. Could you tell us a little bit more? What more do we know now? And what might it show us about this this potential counteroffensive that Francis has detailed earlier in the space? Hi, David. So, yeah, our readers this morning would have got my dispatch about this. Melitopol's nicknamed the gateway to Crimea, and um, it's certainly a a very strategically important position. It has a big railway hub and a big road network, road network hub too. And it sort of sits in the middle of this so-called land bridge between occupying parts of Donbass and uh, occupied Kherson, bits of Kherson and Crimea. So it's a very important link for the Russian army to be able to funnel its supplies and and troops and soldiers and tanks through to get to and from Crimea and to and from Donbass. If Melitopol was to fall, Russian forces in Crimea would be entirely reliant on the land, on the bridge, the 12-mile bridge between Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula and the Russian mainland, the 12-mile bridge which was as we all know attacked in October and, and badly damaged. So there's been a lot of pressure building up it seems. Uh, reports from both Ukrainian and pro-Russian officials around Melitopol. Uh, there's been a lot of reports of a build-up of Ukrainian forces, of an increased number of artillery strikes, this sort of thing. Overnight a Russian official reported six artillery strikes or attempted artillery strikes by High mar long-range artillery uh, weapons that the, artil- uh, that the Ukrainians have. Apparently, these are all shot down. That sort of thing. Yesterday, when I was reporting on on the on the same story, there was a handful of explosions around Melitopol, which is a home to a Russian base, etc. And what another official has said that they he reckons there's seventy-five thousand uh, Ukrainian soldiers are now in place near on the front line, which is sort of. 50 miles or so north of Melitopol around the Dnipro River. So he thinks there's 75,000 Ukrainian soldiers ready to mount their so-called spring offensive. The Ukrainians, as we know, have been talking about the spring offensive for some time now. They haven't launched. Most of the focus of the fighting has been on Bakhmut in the, the Donbass. So we're still waiting for the spring offensive to come through. And strategists are talking about a push for Crimea, as Francis was saying a few minutes earlier, and Melitopol would be an obvious starting point for this push. I just wanted to quickly put my view on, on, on what Francis was saying, and I agree with him. The FT story really sort of solidified to me the Ukrainian position rather than changed it. They want to take the whole of their country back, and they will do so by with force if necessary. And if the and if the Russians do come to the negotiating table, of course they will talk to them about it. But of course they want the whole thing back. I've just been now reporting for the live blog for the Telegraph live blog. Uh, quote a comment from uh, the Russian senator of occupied Crimea, who has said that under no circumstance will Russia negotiate the status of Crimea, which it annexed in 2014. So. I don't think we're any closer to any negotiations happening. I think this this war will continue. And I think it was probably a line that Zelensky advisor gave to the FT to try and shimmy along Western supplies. 
That's fascinating. Thank you very much, James. Can I stay with you, actually? You've been, you mentioned, as we were chatting before this, that you've been looking at Putin over the past week and you had some thoughts and some stories to share about his movements and uh, some news around him. W- would you do that? Sure, yeah. I've been on the Moscow desk for the last few days and Putin's had a busy week, I guess. And uh, this week he's been, he's, uh, he's been travelling around the country talking to... Uh, workers and factories trying to chivvy them along. A week ago, he sort of admitted more or less for the first time that Western sanctions were really going to have an economic impact on, on, on Russians and ordinary Russians, etc. Previously, he'd been really brazing this out and saying Russian industry will, will defeat the Western sanctions, we've got our allies, etc., etc. But now he's sort of coming around to this, you know, the, the reality of, of the Western sanctions. And he took time out to go and visit this... Uh, railway railway line manufacturing plant in Tula, south, a city south of uh, Moscow. And they had this rather stilted, you know, in his normal ways, waxy face barely moving. And, he, and he's, sort of, he's sort of talking at these poor workers who look terribly uncomfortable about the greatness of Russia and all the sacrifices they're going to make, etc., etc. So he had that sort of like photo op, which was a very sort of stilted affair. And then yesterday he hosted this, uh, it, was, it was sort of a normal, meant to be a very normal meeting. It was a meeting for new diplomats who turn up in Moscow and they present their credentials, etc. And he hosts them in one of the great halls of the Kremlin, all, all sort of chandeliers and, and, and gold, etc. And he gives it, he normally gives a bit of a speech and then he meets them and shakes hands with them in person um, and says a few things to them. And he gave this sort of incredibly wafty speech as, as we do, you know, as he's been given to, to, to giving, to, to giving, and you know about the greatness of Russia and the multipolar world and, and Russia's place in this world and how he wants peace and all this sort of thing. And then at the end of this speech, which I I, I, I watched on on Telegram, twenty minutes or so speech, he sort of comes to an end, and then he expects a round of applause from the, these ambassadors and, and their lackeys, and there's nothing. There's just deadpan silence. It was really remarkable. And uh, Mr. And, and Putin it, it sort of looked sort of taken aback by it. He didn't know what to say or do. He looked deeply uncomfortable. And he sort of he sort of follows this up into his microphone. He says, that's the end of the speech and still nothing. And then he says, oh, well, normally I'd come and shake hands with you, but I, I'm really busy and there's some health concerns. And then he sort of turns and totters off and gives like a halfway goodbye and says in English, all the best. I mean, it was just remarkable. It was a real sort of affront to Putin there in the Kremlin. In, you know, what the diplomats, who were, the ambassadors who were given their credentials included the new US ambassador, who was never going to clap Putin. But it also included countries like Mexico, Honduras, etc., who are supposed allies, still ally Russia. So a really interesting vignette, I suppose, of, of the Kremlin's crumbling power and it was all done inside the Kremlin. And you had Putin sort of giving a half wave and mumbling the salutation in English. Good stuff. Thank you very much, James. Staying in the diplomatic space then, can we go back to Francis? Because there's quite a lot of developments here with Macron in China. Can you talk us through what's been happening there? 
Thanks, David. Yes, well, of course, I spoke about this yesterday, Macron going to China and taking Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, head of the EU Commission, uh, with him, supposedly to, in a sense, put pressure on China to do more to try and uh, strong arm Russia into the negotiating table and to stop its sort of brutal invasion. And there's been some more remarks from Macron this morning. He's told President Xi that he's counting on him to bring Russia to its senses regarding the war in Ukraine. I'll read the quote. I know I can count on you to bring Russia to its senses and everyone to the negotiation table. And we're expecting there to be more conversations today about bringing the conflict to an end. So uh, Macron will be in a meeting with Xi, as will certain EU leaders. And they've already been greeted with all the sort of grandiosity you would normally expect on these kind of visits. So they've gone to the Great Hall of the People, the heart of power in the capital, and they've had all of the normal photo opportunities. But uh, it, it remains to be seen, really, what they're going to be getting out of this. And I think that... Of course, Western pressure is mounting on China to make more of an active role in the peace process. And that's something that China seems to be very keen to to do. But as I keep saying, we have still not seen any evidence of China reaching out to Ukraine, as they promised. And so I think at this stage, it does still feel very much like it's one way with Xi sort of backing Putin, really, rather than being this great uh, bringer of, of, of the, to the table of the, of the two sides. And, and of course, which would require a nuanced understanding of what Ukraine's demands are and what Putin's demands are. And yet I don't see really any really recognition in its 12-point peace plan as to actually what Ukraine wants. The, the, so so thin is the detail on it. And so um, I'm, I'm very sceptical as to this sort of peacemaking role that, that China may seek, seems to be seeking to have. I think the other important point to emphasize here is that as part of Macron's delegation, uh, there are numerous business leaders with him. I think representatives from Airbus are there, Alstrom, um, numerous artists and filmmakers, which is all designed, of course, to solidify business and cultural ties with what is the world's second largest economy. But one could argue, of course, that whatever the rhetoric, uh, if you're trying to strengthen these business times, the message is still ultimately that Europe, France wants Chinese business relationships, regardless of how China supports Russian activities. And I think it all comes down to this diplomatic consensus, really, which still seems to be, despite everything that's happened with the war, that money is the force that spreads peace ultimately around the world rather than a strong say moral stance so finance is is really seen as the west's central conduit for spreading its values despite the fact that both russia and china have been able to embrace capitalism whilst maintaining their autocracies and evidently the folly of 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 the bill of the west building a reliance on these countries that has ultimately not had this intended effect which was meant to make wars impossible but actually has arguably strengthened russia's hand in terms of how it's been able to deal with the west and whether that be uh, germany so and Eastern uh, countries. It's, it's, it's a very curious state of affairs how this sort of, I suppose, di- as I say, diplomatic mentality has not been severely shaken by this. But still, this seems to be that the way to keep China on side and to get them to do, in a sense, what the West wants is to strengthen ties commercial and diplomatic and political. And as I say, I, I, until 
perhaps we get to the stage where that that is shown to be foolish with regard to China, then I don't foresee there to be a huge shift there. But as I say, um, we will see what more we get out of this and whether there is any sign of China shifting position. But as I say, I'm not holding my breath. So that's the big diplomatic story, David. But one will, of course, be be monitoring over the weekend. And I'd recommend that um, listeners do check out the live blog that James just alluded to, because we are constantly updating that throughout the day, including when we're not on air. And I imagine that there'll be some interesting developments in that space. Thank you very much, Francis. Hamish Breton-Gordon, thank you so much for listening to all of that. Um, Would you like to offer any comments on anything we've talked about um, before we get to the main reason uh, we we brought you on today? Yeah, hi, good afternoon. Um, Really fascinating. The first thing that that I'd like to cover is Danny's dispatch from the front there. I think it's probably very difficult for listeners to understand what the sort of shock of war, shock of conflict is back. Is, is like. And Danny's very lucid description of how she's terrified and how frightening it is really brings home. I mean, I can remember so clearly my first day in conflict back in the first Gulf Wars 30, 31 odd years ago. I was terrified, feel that every shot is being fired at you, every artillery shell is coming your way. And those first few days are, you know, it's really difficult, but you do get used to it. And uh, and Danny's saying, you know, the, the, the troops, good morale, they weren't flinching like everybody else. They are getting used to it. And certainly after 34 odd years of doing this stuff, I wouldn't say I was used to it. And I'm still petrified when I get into those positions. But it is that shock of war, that shock of conflict it is is horrendous. And my piece in the Telegraph yesterday about the meat grinder going on around Bakhmut, where the conscripts are getting no training and are lasting only seven days on the front line, you can absolutely see it. I mean, I expect these young kids are absolutely petrified and don't know which way to look. So, yeah, I, I really take my hat off to Danny and, and all you guys and girls who go out to the front line. It's really difficult going there for a few days, going in and out. You know, the mental pressure it is immense. For the soldiers themselves, we do battlefield inoculation. Um, we do a lot of training and you sort of get used to it. So that feel, smell of the battlefield. Yeah, I thought D- Danny did a really great job. J- just on the Crimea, I this sort of ambiguity that uh, Ukraine is producing now over, you know, perhaps suggesting that they might negotiate. Yeah, I'm with Francis on this. I'm massively impressed by the way that the Ukrainians go about their business, the way that they are very canny. And it's put, it's got people talking. It's nobody really knows what it means. But again, if it's a ruse of war to get the Russians off balance, then I think absolutely it works. And you've been talking about the Chinese and Macron, obviously, uh, in China at the moment. I I thought it was quite interesting. I saw a quote today from the Chinese representative to the European Union just stating, I think they've stated it before, that China does does not support the Russian invasion of Ukraine, does not supply military assistance and does not support the annexation of Crimea and the Donbass. So hopefully things are moving and being positioned. And I think when we come on to Finland, and I'll take a breath before we do, that sort of strategic mood music and everything else is really bearing down on Putin now. And um, he, from what we've just been saying about his various discussions in Moscow over the last couple of days, his mind is, if it's not fuddled, it should be. 
So, yeah, really interesting times that perhaps gives us hope. And uh, I'll take a breath before moving on to what I think is, is the biggest news of the week, if not the month, Finland coming into NATO. Well, absolutely. So Finland joined NATO this week. It hugely lengthens NATO's border with Russia. The Finns bring with them a extremely competent, well-resourced army. And Hamish, I wanted to bring you on yeah, to talk about that a little bit. What should we know about Finland, Finland's army? What, can they, what do they offer to NATO? Well, I mean, first of all, and whatever other senior military people might have said yesterday about the Finnish military... It is hugely significant. And I'll just break down a few details. But if you go back to the beginning, Putin said he started this war to prevent NATO expansion. And if anything could go 180 degrees wrong from that decision, it is Finland joining NATO yesterday. It doubles the border that Russia now has with NATO. The you know, next 832 miles. When you are completely militarily committed as Russia is to Ukraine, and you've suddenly got to look up to your uh, northwest, as it were, you know, it, it puts you off balance. So I think it, it couldn't have gone any worse. I'm sure when he was doing his contingency plans before he invaded Ukraine, the absolutely worst option would be Finland joining NATO. And, and that has happened. And what, why has that happened? Quite apart from the fact that it has created this border and if you look at it on the map, and there's a very good on the Telegraph website at the moment showing that, you know, that Finnish border really covers the 50 percent sort of going northwards, as it were. And um, and of course, there's a lot of history between the Finns and Russians and the Finns have generally come off much better. But if you actually look at the, the military themselves, I mean, the numbers of manpower are hugely significant. They have a 30,000 strong standing army. But they have up to 280,000 people that can be brought in to, to the military in times of war. And these people are trained soldiers. They're not the everybody has to do uh, military training. And in theory, they have a, a bank of about 800,000 people that they could get into the military. So and it's very popular. It's not like sort of national service, you know, in this country back in the 50s. Uh, and other places, which is seen as an absolute nightmare. The Finns really understand it. They really get behind it. And Finnish people make absolutely excellent soldiers. You know, they're very hardy. They're very used to working and fighting in in that um, climate, particularly in the winter. But when you look at the kit that they've got, it makes the British military have a deep look at it. They, they've got 200 Leopard 2 tanks. You know, that's twice as many challenges that, that we've got in the British Army. And on the artillery side, 1,500 artillery pieces. This makes them the biggest single artillery army within European NATO, as it were. And we've seen how significant, how important artillery is in the battle of Ukraine. This is modern artillery. This is not just shells that you're going far around. I think the other thing that struck me, you look at their air force. Now, 64 F-35s, is a very significant fire. The Royal Air Force has 30 F-35s and it's going to get, I think, another 18 over the next couple of years. So when you look at both tanks and aircraft, the Finnish military has twice as much as the British military. So when you put, and also, of course, it makes the Baltic Sea more secure for NATO. 
and the Ukraine and the Finnish Navy again has a lot of very capable craft. So I think in sum, what you now have in the northeast of NATO's area in Europe, you have the Finns who are well trained, very well equipped, highly motivated and uh, highly capable. And quite frankly, to me, it's, it's absolutely locked the door on Russia. Um, this couldn't be worse for them. And with all the other things going on at the moment, the Kremlin must be a really unpleasant place to be. I'll take a breath there. Thank you very much, Hamish. Well, from everything you say, let's just really hope the Finns never take against us. Francis and James, do you, would you like to come in on that or add anything to what Hamish has been saying? Well, I would just echo exactly what Hamish has said. I think it's very easy for us to just look at the as a political influence of and symbolic value of Finland joining NATO. But this actually really does, as Hamish says, in a worst case scenario, this is hugely important if things were to escalate to a very serious state. Um, the, having the geopolitical positioning, the geographical positioning, but also the military might that Finland bring to bear is, as, as Hamish has summarised, considerable and so i don't and but more importantly of course is the deterrent effect that this has that by the very manner of them being part of nato of course it it acts as a huge deterrent to russia and in many ways i know that you could say well much of western policy in terms of preventing russia from striking ukraine and obviously engaging in other imperialistic activity has failed but in the fundamental red lines that have been drawn by nato it has had an impact. You know, Russia has not tried to roll tanks across other parts of Europe that are part of NATO because they know that if they were to do so, that it would lead to, well, I, I actually even hesitate to say World War Three because I don't think that Russia would last that long, frankly, given that what we've now seen of the Russian army in action in Ukraine. But nonetheless, it would it would be utterly disastrous for them, it would certainly be, mark the end of Putin. So red lines do matter, which is why I think that this policy of strategic ambiguity that the West so often adopts, you know, say as little as possible, uh, and, and and because that increases your hand and the, your power, because your your enemies don't know exactly what you're uh, going to do, is in many ways often misplaced. Because actually, if you do make it clear what your red lines are and what you are willing to accept, then it acts as a very very powerful deterrent indeed. And if only there had been perhaps more clearer red lines articulated about Ukraine, then we may have been able to prevent this invasion in the first place. So uh, completely echoing what Hamish has said this is a really big moment and I know I said yesterday it's perhaps one of the most important if not the most important development uh, since the war began if one is zooming out and looking about how uh, the map of Europe and the and the wider west has been shaped by this war but of course we still await to see whether Sweden will, will join and I think it will I think the impediments to that are are slowly shifting, and so we'll. I think we can expect another NATO member in the coming months, and and that again will have a big impact on on Putin's ability to be able to deny that this war is is uh, is going badly for him. Because ultimately, as Hamish says, this this was a war that was articulated as being stopping NATO expansion, and it has had the complete opposite desired effect. And I think that you know the Russian elite and the Russian people will be able to very very. Clear see that it's not something that you can hide so uh, a very very big week thank you francis james anything to add on that or any other updates you'd like to talk us through oh, no, no only to totally agree i i was really and i thought hamish laid out excellently i was really surprised yesterday to to watch some dismissive remarks from some very formerly high-ranking 
British commanders about the uh, Finnish army, I think they got that completely wrong. And I think it's a huge asset to NATO to have them lining up on, on our side. The, the only thing I would slightly add is that Finland, with all its military preparations and its, its tanks and its training and its conscription and its, its air force, etc., it has been single-mindedly focused on the threat from Russia. So, uh, yeah, really, really good NATO asset. And it also, it sort of completes the idea that the Baltic Sea is becoming or is almost has almost become a NATO lake, other than than Russia uh, one at the very end of it. Sweden, when Sweden joins, that that'll be it. It will be con- completely sort of bordered by NATO countries. So yeah, all, all very important. Just one other thing, David, which is, of course, as Hamish referenced, Finland and, and the Soviet Union had a, a very, well, a violent history. The, the Winter War famously started in 1939. I think it went on into 1940, where the Soviets were fighting directly Finland in combat and the Finns managed to bat them off. I mean, it was a very impressive shocked Europe at the time that the Finns were capable of this. And it has echoes, as we've talked about in the past, many months ago on the podcast, with this war in Ukraine, where Russia invades and is expected to roll the tanks through and for it all to be over very quickly. But Finns, through strategy, through their technological understanding and also geographical as well, and also elements of the weather, played a huge role and were ultimately led to, well, sizable defeats for the Soviets. And ultimately, it was not a success from what the uh, Soviet Union sought to achieve. So uh, this is this is not a country that should be underestimated in the way, as James was just saying, some have, I think, in the last 24 hours. Yes, absolutely. I, ju- I mean, just to note, of course, that Finland did, did cede 9% of its territory, including including Karelia to the Soviet Union at the end of the Winter War. But you're absolutely right that the some of the the, the earlier battles were the Finnish army inflicted and the, the, the ski troopers inflicted huge losses on unprepared and under-equipped Russian-Soviet troops. Are there any other updates from Francis, Hamish or James? Or shall we go to our final thoughts? Um, David, can I j- just a very quick one on the nuclear issue? And I only raise it because a lot of people are asking me, and I do advise quite a lot of people in and around Ukraine on it. But as I've said on the pod before, this is something that I think is a is bluff and bluster. And we, we should absolutely focus on it, but people should not be unduly concerned. It's a bit like Finland joining NATO. The, the Russians, in starting the conflict wanted to prevent NATO expansion. The Russians from the very beginning have used the nuclear issue to keep NATO out, and it just hasn't worked for 14 months. So I think with all that, when when the Kremlin says there will be repercussions for Finland joining NATO, there will be repercussions if there is a counter-strike into Crimea, sort of insinuating on the nuclear side. Again, I think this is hollow. I personally think they cannot use their tactical nuclear weapons. And we nobody, even the hard, hardest hardliner in the Kremlin, is talking about sort of nuclear Armageddon. So I think people should, you know, not put overdue weight on nuclear because it has failed. That card has been played and it doesn't work. So um, just uh, just if people are still concerned, which I know they are, it's... Uh, it's a spent one. Over. Thank you very much, Hamish. Well, for our final thoughts, shall we start with James or Francis? What will you be uh, looking at over the Easter break? 
I'm happy to go first, David. An interesting update in the last 24 hours is that President Biden and Justin Trudeau of Canada have called for the immediate release of the Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Guskovich, which, of course, we've spoken a lot about in the last week or so. He was arrested in Russia on spying charges when there's absolutely no evidence of that. And this has been extensively denied by the Wall Street Journal as well, that the White House has called the espionage charge, which carries a prison term, of course, of up to 20 years as absolutely ridiculous. And I do think it's just obviously an important moment when you've got two important world leaders who are raising this case and not letting it go away. It's not going to go away and nor should it. And I think it's important, though, that we do remember the Ukrainians and the others who remain in Russian captivity with no communication with the outside world. As I've said before on the podcast, it's an uncomfortable fact that one of the reasons that the Soviet gulags have never instilled themselves in the kind of cultural consciousness in the same way as, say, the Nazi death camps, despite millions dying in the gulags in the most hideous conditions, is that they were so far away and deliberately designed to be so. They were also never liberated. They were never left as monuments like we have with many of the, the Nazi death camps. We have no image in our mind's eye of, uh, of the, 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 I think it's Vorkutlag, I think was the biggest. And in the way that we do, say, an Auschwitz or a Buchenwald, the gulags were just deconstructed or left to rot. But many of the penal colonies in Russia today are essentially repurposed Soviet gulags. Their erasure from history has made it easier for these modern equivalents to be maintained. And in the same way that we that people are erased, you sort of lock them up and make, it makes it easier for their story to never be told. And on this point, I would really recommend listeners to check out a book by Clive James called Cultural Amnesia, which really makes one appreciate the cultural vacuum that was left by those who were murdered by the Nazis and the Soviets in the 20th century, because he basically looks at biographies of, of many figures from the 20th century, but a particularly long list of those who perhaps who were killed early on or whose work has been largely forgotten because they were silenced. And it just speaks to a whole lost tradition, particularly in the Soviet Union, as a consequence of the persecution of intellectuals and journalists at that time. So I'd recommend that. So as I say, just to reiterate, I, I think it's vital that we don't forget those who are locked up. They may seem far away and unreachable, but that's, of course, the whole point. Thank you, Francis. Uh, James Kilner. Well, I'm on for the next few days again, and it looks like it's going to be a very busy time. I'll be looking out for uh, any movements around Melitopol, obviously, and Crimea. And um, I'm also finding a story shortly about uh, Putin's increasing COVID concerns. We've got rising COVID coronavirus cases in Russia, and it seems to be that he is distancing himself from people again, putting up. Uh, quarantines and insisting vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the reason that this is important is because we think that his isolation uh, during the height of the COVID pandemic in 2020 and 2021 fed into his fixation on Ukraine and his the idea that he needed to invade, invade Ukraine. So I will be looking at that and finally through on it very shortly and uh, just keeping a watch on the Kremlin in general, as well as very importantly, as Francis said, keeping a very close eye on developments from Evan, the uh, imprisoned Wall Street Journal journalist. Thank you, Francis and James. Uh, Hamish de Bretton-Gordon, would you like the very final words? Yes, thanks very much. I think like others, I am looking very closely at the so-called counteroffensive 
it is pretty clear that quite a lot of what we call preparation of the battlefield is happening physically by the Ukrainians, some of the deep strikes we've heard about, perhaps some of the other clandestine activity that might be going on, but also from a sort of uh, leadership and diplomatic perspective, throwing this Crimea hand grenade into the public domain. I think, and we are pretty concerned that a lot of the Western weaponry is now in and around the battle space, being trained and prepared. But I think what, going back to my point on how canny the Ukrainians are, there are lots of us pontificating about what might happen or what might not happen. I think the key thing is that we will all be surprised and the Russians are most surprised of all when it happens, where it happens and what happens. But I am certainly pretty confident that uh, Ukraine has got the wherewithal to really push this home. Uh, And hopefully we can look for sunnier days in Ukraine, not on the too far distant future. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1.00 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube... Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.